0: Hey, welcome to night school. Doing a lot of these, but I don't know what else to do. I have things on my mind, I've got to say things. For whoever wants to hear it, because I want to say it. And, you know, I want to talk about the phrase, the right side of history. And I hear it used mockingly these days, as much as I do in earnest. As much as I hear it used in earnest. But I still do hear people use it sincerely at least as sincere as a heavily loaded phrase like that can be, but I do believe people mean it. I do believe many people truly mean that when they say, I want to be on the right side of history. You want to be on the right side of history, don't you? But it's, it tends to be used more toward other people. It's weaponized. And what they really mean is you want to go to heaven, right? Because in their mind, the wrong side of history is hell. And when people are talking about being on the right side of history or the wrong side of history, they are referring to a form of posthumous judgment, which is obviously heaven and hell terms. You know, that's that's obviously talking in terms of heaven and hell, referring to some kind of posthumous judgment. There's, of course, a lot of hubris to it. There's a certain level of audacity to believing that you will be remembered at all. Especially given how many of these people don't have children. I mean, you're lucky if your great-grandchildren care enough to, to know what your name was. You're lucky if your great-great-great-grandchild has even just a sliver of an interest in genealogy. And even then, they'll probably have to look you up. They'll probably have to look you up in some kind of genealogical database. So you're lucky if you're remembered even by your own descendants. But the idea of you as a person who may or may not have children, but just a person of any kind, the idea that you will be remembered, and not just you being remembered, but the idea that people will care about what you believed in, assuming there were even actions to go along with those beliefs. So there's a level of hubris and audacity to that, the idea that you will be remembered. And I don't think that people who say that necessarily, I don't think they necessarily are thinking, oh, someone's going to look back at me specifically. What they're saying is they want people to be able to look back at a block of people and say those people were right. They were on the right side of history and they want to be associated with that block of people but there is you know a, lo- a high degree of ego in it as well where they specifically want to know as an individual that they were in line with this form of thinking that people will look back on fondly people will judge them favorably and if you're on the wrong side of history well you're evil you're hellish. You deserve to go to hell. Being on the wrong side of history is a form of secular hell. And yeah, you're you know, you think about the most famous people who are living today and to think that only a small minority of them will be remembered at all. And no matter how outspoken that person is, no matter what they say or what they believe in, even those people you know, they'll probably be looked at by historians and historians will dispute what that person actually believed in. I mean, you see it with uh, history today where people will talk about figures from the 1800s, not even that long ago. And they'll say, well, we think he meant this when he said this. We think that he believed this, but some historians believe otherwise. So even when we have information on a historical figure People often dispute later what they actually believe in, and who's to say we can even understand that? If you don't live in a given time, who's to say you can actually understand why that person believed what they believed? There might be nuances that are impossible for us to pick up, and if that's true for things that happened 200 years ago, you can be guaranteed that's going to be true 200 years from now. The idea that people in the future, well, first of all, I mean, it depends on this idea that there is an absolute right. There is something that is fundamentally right. Because being on the right side of history, what that just means is I'm right. I'm right. I'm on the right side of history, but more importantly, uh, in shorthand, what that means is I'm right. I'm right right now. And I think it's good to think in terms of being right right now right right now. I think it's good to think in those terms, because that's all that truly matters to you as a living being. If you feel that you are doing the right thing right now, that seems like it's good enough. If you're a reasonable person, if you're not hurting anybody directly, you know, I hope everybody believes they're doing the right thing right now. Otherwise, they're disingenuous. You know, I hope that even the worst people alive, I hope even monstrous people believe they are doing the right thing, because the alternative is that they don't believe they're doing the right thing, and they're deliberately doing horrible things. So just on a purely, you know, just just to put a positive spin on humanity, no matter what they do, I hope that people believe they are doing the right thing, because the alternative is far worse. Somebody being delusional is actually better than them deliberately doing something evil. At least in my opinion, some people might disagree. I don't know. Be a weird discussion. There'd be a weird argument to have. Uh, (laughs) No, no, no. It's worse when people don't know they're doing something evil and they do, I don't know, whatever someone could possibly say in response to that. But yeah, I'd rather somebody feel that they are right right now. But once you start to look into the future, it starts to get a little strange. It really does start to resemble this idea of a secular heaven and a secular hell. And and again, there's a level of, I'd say, arrogance. I don't know how many synonyms I, I want to get into here. Hubris, arrogance, audacity. But, uh, you know, people who believe that they will be remembered at all. You know, it's something we all want, one way or another. I mean, I personally like the idea of being lost to obscurity. Not in a nihilistic way, not in a self-defeating way. But, you know, a part of me thinks winning the game is being lost to obscurity. There's nobody left to analyze who you were or what you said or where you fit in, whether you were good or bad. You know, we all think of success as... You know, achieving power and fame and being remembered by future generations of humans but I almost wonder if those are the souls that have to come back and relive this whole thing and do it again I almost feel like you win when you live a good life but you're lost to history soon after you die the people who knew you will remember you if you have descendants they might decide to look up your name they might be happy that they were descended from you cuz you were a good person but you're pretty much lost to obscurity that to me feels like winning the game but you can't decide to do that you can't be like oh i'm going to i'm going to be obscure cuz it's really not up to you you just have you just have to live your life and if that's how things line up that's how they line up um but uh yeah, it's like, I'm going to I'm going to be homeless and die very young so that nobody remembers me. You can't cheat like that. You're definitely going to have to come back and do this life again if you do that. So it's again a balance between living a good life, doing the right thing, doing the right thing. Cuz you can't escape this. I mean, that's why I don't get mad when I hear somebody say, "You want to be on the right side of history, don't you?" You're going to be on the wrong side of history, even though I do roll my eyes, and I, of course, never roll my eyes in real life. So what I'm talking about are my internal eyes. I roll my internal eyes. I internalize my internal eyes. Um. uh, But yeah, I roll my my inner eyes when someone says that, of course, but. I make sure not to get mad because I understand how good it feels to be right. You know, I've talked on here recently about how often it doesn't. Sometimes being right doesn't make you feel good. Uh, But, you know, we all do prefer to be right one way or another. And so I I completely understand why people want to feel like they're not just right right now, but they will be right forever, And beyond believing that history will look back on you fondly, which is, oh man, that's quite a gamble. Because I'm personally of the belief that history makes fools of nearly everyone. History makes a fool out of nearly everyone. At the very least, you know, we look back at people who were in conflict, and often we look back and we say, it's kind of silly they were both fighting over that, considering their civilization is no longer around. And, of course, in the moment, that conflict felt essential, and it probably was. Probably, you know, they were probably, probably didn't have much of a choice in some cases. But we don't tend to look back, at least I don't. You know, I'm interested in history, and very rarely do I look back at history, especially the farther back you go. And I don't say, oh, gee, look at those people. They were the right ones. They were right. (laughs) Oh, man, it's amazing reading about these people from a thousand years ago and how this group was right. Typically, you look back at them and it's almost like seeing ants. It's like ants who look like you, but you look back at them and it's almost like you're you climbed high up a ladder and you're viewing them from this new vantage point that they didn't have. And I guess maybe personally, I don't feel the need to assess people who are no longer here especially the farther back you go. Because again, there, there have to be nuances to that experience at that time that I can't possibly detect. And so I don't think it's helpful to think about yourself in the context of a history that has yet to happen. And I think people who use those sorts of phrases would say, oh, I'm not actually thinking about it. I don't mean it literally. But I'm not convinced I wouldn't be convinced by that. If somebody said, I don't literally mean the right or wrong side of history. What I really mean is right now, and I'm just... uh," They would have to admit they're using hyperbole, which people are hesitant to do. Uh, But I think some people deep down would tell you, oh, I'm not really thinking about the way that future people will reflect on me personally. Little old me. Um, But uh, I, I do believe that they mean what they say whether they mean it literally or not I do believe they mean what they say because people are very passionate about it and they throw these phrases out with a great deal of passion and I do believe they are referring to heaven and hell in their own way because these are placeholders and it's very easy to understand placeholder words when we're talking about different cultures and different languages for example you know oh those people over there they have their own word for hell and they basically mean the same thing the word is different but they mean the same thing oh they got they they call flowers this they have this word for flower oh in france they call it a fleur F-L-E-U-R, you know, they call it a fleur. Whereas we call it a flower. It's so different, fleur and flower. But uh, you can be like, okay, they're referring to the same thing. They're referring to the same thing I'm referring to. They have a, a slightly different way of saying it. And that tells you that these are placeholders, Even though we deeply identify with the words we use for things, deep down we also know that they are placeholders. How that thing isn't just, when we see a flower, you know, there's no uh, tag on it. You know, you think about like the tag in your t-shirt that says what brand it is. You know, there's no tag on the side of the flower that says flower, it's something we've come up with to refer to that object that we see and interact with, and people in other places have their own word for it. And all of these words are placeholders for this object, and the same is true for ideas. And so it's, I, I feel like it's pretty easy to understand that. When we're looking at different languages and different cultures to be like, okay, yeah, we all have our own words for things, therefore those words are placeholders for the actual thing, for this thing that has its own essence apart from these words. But when it comes to your own culture, it can get a little more confusing. And it's more difficult to understand that idea of placeholders because you're talking about your own language. Therefore, you would think that anybody who speaks your language would refer to that thing using the same word you do. But that's not true. So you can say heaven and hell. And when someone says right side of history or wrong side of history, You're not going to think they're referring to the same thing because they're using your language, and if they're using your language, why wouldn't they just call it heaven and hell like you would? Well, because people are experiencing different things, even within the same culture, even within the same language. They have their own view. They have their own cone of vision, and you think about what is heaven and hell based on? You know, it's, it's a certain, living a certain way, conducting yourself a certain way, having a certain set of, you know, following a certain uh, moral framework, ethical framework, believing, having faith in some idea that is fundamentally good. And you acting that way is better for the world. And it's also better for you, because you get to go to the good place. When you die, the posthumous judgment you receive will be favorable. You're going to heaven. And when you take away that word, when you take away the... When you secularize that idea, and you say, Okay, here's these people, they have a moral and ethical framework. And they have a fundamental belief that... You know, following a certain set of ideas is better. It will make the world better, and it will make they themselves better if they follow this. And if they follow that, they will be on the right side of history. Posthumous judgment will be favorable. So you can see where the exact same steps are, are in play. They're following the same exact steps to get there. And I don't think any of that is trivial. I don't think it's trivial to want to be on the right side of history, even though it's audacious to say that. And it's audacious to say, I'm going to heaven too. And there's also a frivolous side of this where, you know, there are parents who will say to their kid, you're going to hell if you don't brush your teeth tonight. They'll use it as a weapon. There are parents who use the idea, there, there are religious parents who use the ideas of heaven and hell like they would a weapon, and they will tell their kid they're going to hell for petty reasons. Oh, you, you didn't brush your teeth. If you don't brush your teeth, you're going to hell. If you don't brush your teeth, you're going to hell. And of course, you can, you know, you can turn that into a, a rational argument by saying, if you don't brush your teeth... Your teeth are going to rot and fall out. You're going to look like a freak. People are going to start treating you like a freak. You're going to hate them for it. You're going to start behaving in an antisocial way. You might be homeless because you can't get a job with no teeth. You're going to you know, be an outcast. And like many outcasts, you'll start lashing out at the people who you feel outcasted you. And the people who you feel outcasted you are probably going to be just the normal people of society, so you'll hate everybody. And in doing all of that, you will be a monster, and you might do horrible things that will send you to hell. So yeah, not brushing your teeth could let could put you down a path that sends you to hell, but the act itself isn't going to. And uh, it's often you know I don't think, I don't think parents have even thought that out. I think they're just. What a parent means when they say, if you don't eat your vegetables, you're going to go to hell. Or something equally frivolous and petty. Uh, when they say that, they're not thinking, oh, this could send him down a path where he's going to do this and he's going to become a monster. And you know, They're not even thinking about that. They're just thinking, this is an effective way to get this kid to do what I want. That's all they're thinking. And they're also communicating a lack of spiritual depth on their own part. Because if they are a truly spiritual person who believes in heaven and hell, they're not going to throw that around lightly. And then you go to the secular idea of it, this idea of right side of history, wrong side of history. People are using it similarly as a weapon about everything. Oh, you said the wrong thing. You... You believed something that I disagree with, that is very open to interpretation. You're on the wrong side of history. It's just how it is. It's trying to get people to do what you want. And I think with this secular idea, it's so politicized that it's, it's obviously not just... It's not equivalent to a parent trying to get their kid to do what they want them to do. Because it's good for the kid, it's good for the family It's not as simple as that With this right side of history, wrong side of history thing It's far more based on political power and political advantage And so it is different in that way But it's used very similarly You used the wrong word Or you, you said something that was misinterpreted By a certain type of person So you're going to hell You're going to be on the wrong side of history I hope you like secular hell. Hope you like secular hell. That's you know it's a very similar it's a very similar way of thinking. And it is used just as frivolously. Cause it'd be one thing if it was like, oh, you committed a hate crime. You lynched somebody. You're gonna be on the wrong side of history. It'd be one thing if it was used when there was some weight to the accusation. But it's it's often used very casually. You know, it's often used very casually, where it's like, oh... Uh, you, it turns out you uh, you don't believe the current... You haven't paid attention to the current discussions going on in academia concerning gender and as a result you said something that is slightly outdated to a small group of people who operate in a bubble and and whose brains are part of this feedback loop and because you said something that doesn't harmonize with what they believe you're going to hell and we see where that plays out in religion of course we see where that is used within religion you know oh you know it's it's when cults form i mean all this is is very cult like you see where cults form where it's like oh not only not only do all these non believers not only are all these non believers going to hell but even the believers who believe something slightly different from us are going to hell only our cult is going to heaven and so that's what happens whenever you have a bubble a bubble fueled who A bubble whose air supply depends on this feedback loop. Everybody's just breathing each other's air. You know, that's what ends up happening is just the parameters become smaller and smaller. So the people who are going to heaven, it becomes a very exclusive group. The people who are on the right side of history, very exclusive. And that's what people want. People like exclusivity. It's not that they're elitists, we just tend to like exclusivity. And once you accept that, it's cool, because you actually become less of an elitist by saying that we all have some interest in exclusivity. It's the endless pursuit of jewels. We're all looking for a jewel that nobody else has found. We're all looking for a treasure. And if you once you realize that, it, you're not going to stop looking for jewels. You're not going to stop hunting for jewels. But you will kind of come to an understanding. Um, so I sometimes wonder if people who... I sometimes wonder if the people who are saying, you want to be on the right side of history, don't you? I sometimes wonder if they actually want that to be inclusive. Do they actually want as many people as possible to be on the right side of history? Or do they like believing they belong to a small, exclusive club? This limited group who will be on the right side of history. Because no matter what somebody says, people like to feel like they are special. It's why people rebel in some cases. Some people become rebels simply because they want to feel like they are part of a a smaller subset of the population. And when that rebellion turns mainstream or just gets bigger than it was when they entered it, they resent that and they get out of it. You see it happen with bands. You see it happen with all kinds of interests. And not just this underground mentality of like, oh, I only like obscure things. I only like things that are obscure. You know, it's not even just that because you see it in all kinds of different places. And it's, it's an attitude you see where people will say, I don't know why everybody doesn't like this. You know, you'll find a band you like. Oh, I found this heavy metal band from 1983 that released a demo and an album. I don't know why everybody doesn't understand how good this band is. These guys, they're so much better than Iron Maiden. This is better than Iron Maiden. You know, it's like someone will think that and be like why don't the, why didn't these guys get the attention they deserved and then some hip label reissues it. This happens all the time depending on the kind of music you're into. But this happens all the time where there's some band who was completely overlooked 20, 30 years ago and you found them, you you bought their record, you know, the price hasn't shot up yet on eBay or Discogs or wherever you buy records. And, oh, you got a good deal on it, and nobody cares about it. You're in this exclusive club of people who cared about this band. And then that gets reissued. A more popular label reissues it. All kinds of people are into it now. And, of course, not not everybody, but just a larger group of people uh, have been exposed to it. And something feels a little, uh, you know, you don't enjoy it quite as much. And, yeah, that's petty. It's petty, but a lot of people go through this with different things. That's just an easy example I can give where you just kind of think, oh, you know, now that this thing is getting credit, now that this band is getting credit from people, I no longer feel like, uh, I mean, people do it with with women. You know, it's like, oh, I'm the only one who like this. Oh, I, I see the beauty in this woman. I'm the only one who's ever seen the beauty in this woman over here. Oh, and she's, she's on a date with me. She's my girlfriend. I'm the only one who ever saw her beauty. And the next thing you know, like men are telling you like, oh, she's, your girlfriend's hot. Your girlfriend's hot. And you hear that enough and you, you might get kind of upset. You know, you're kind of like, now everybody thinks my girlfriend's hot. There's something proprietary. And, and it's not even like a, oh, women are my property sort of thing. It's just that you thought that you saw something nobody else did. And a part of you wondered why they didn't. But then when they did, when people did start noticing your girlfriend, when she did start getting attention from other men, you get upset. And it's just a natural thing. It's like we like things to be exclusive. But one of the attractions of ex- of exclusivity is that we can say, I don't know why other people don't aren't into this. I don't know why other people don't notice that this thing's cool. I don't know why other people don't believe this. And I think that that is a part of this modern progressive movement. And I question how progressive it is. But I think it is part of this modern progressive movement that's like everybody needs to be on the right side of history. But I don't know that they actually want everybody to. Because a lot of the language and behavior is very exclusionary. You know, a lot of it seems designed to attack and divide and split hairs. To me, it doesn't seem very inclusive, even though that's one of their brand words, inclusivity. But I don't know that they actually want everybody to be on their side. Because there are very effective ways to do that. There are very effective ways to include people. And I don't see a lot of that. I see a lot of shaming. I see a lot of the behavior, that I see a lot of the negative behaviors that people have pointed out for years in organized religion and cults playing out within this mindset. And again, I will say, I believe history has a tendency to make fools out of everybody. And the more history you read, the more that will become apparent and and the more that you see history make a fool of people the more you realize that that's fine cuz none of this should be rooted in some kind of nihilism oh history's going to make a fool out of everybody therefore i don't need to do anything history's going to make a fool out of me therefore i'm never going to commit to do anything i'm never going to try to do the right thing It doesn't matter if I do the right thing, because even if I do, history might not. Well, first of all, history probably won't remember little old me. But even if it does, historians might not even know what I was saying. Scholars might argue over what I meant. If I'm important enough to be remembered, they still might not even understand me. So I'm not I'm not even going to I don't even care about being right right now. But you should be. You should be concerned with being right right now. To the best of your ability. And we're all imperfect. But you should be concerned with being right right now. Uh, Because all these ideas, you know, heaven, hell, right side of history, wrong side of history. The best you're going to get is being right right now. If you're being judged at the gates of heaven, they're not looking at, you from a historical perspective. They're looking at the conduct that you. They're looking at the life you lived while you were here. And so why shouldn't you live a life. While you are alive. It turns out the only way to live a life is while you are alive. Uh, but why shouldn't you live a life. Where you believe you are doing the right thing. So None of this comes from a place of nihilism or, you know, just uh, I'm not telling anybody to paralyze yourself into inaction by by being like, oh, nothing matters. The schoolboy, the schoolboy show said, uh, said history uh, doesn't matter. You know, history is not going to even remember me. History is not even going to remember me. And even then, they're probably not going to know what I what I actually even believed in. They're probably not even going to get my beliefs right. Because some of the nuances are going to be lost. So who cares? I'll just do whatever I want. No, I don't believe that at all. I believe that everything that you need to do, everything that's right, is something that is either right right now, or it doesn't matter. You only have the tools that are available to you right now. You only have the present moment to work with. And, and again, too, when someone says, you know, you want to be on the right side of history, don't you? What they're saying is, I'm right. They're saying I'm right right now. And it's just it's just such an amazing phenomenon. I'm so lucky to be alive at a time where the first generation of people to be completely right are living. All those people from the past that we can look back on and say, hey, they were wrong. It's amazing that we got it right. It's amazing that the only 100% right people to ever exist were born in 1982, between the years of 1982 and 1997, and uh, it's just incredible. What a phenomenon to be part of the first generation to ever be completely right. Oh my goodness. That's just, uh, uh, I'm so lucky to have the option of being completely right for eternity. That's funny. That's a funny thought. And uh, that's a whole other level about audacity, believing that you're part of the first generation to get it right. Oh, the science right now is is, is, is finally right. Medicine, it's finally 100% right. We believe in science. Well, do you believe in the science of 200 years ago when it was wrong? And it's, again, not an excuse to dismiss the science that we have right now, but to act like what we have right now is fundamentally true or accurate. You know, you're setting yourself up. You know, which is why people should emphasize the scientific process. Because it's the scientific process that undermines science itself. The scientific process proves that scientific conclusions are wrong. And so I love the scientific process because it doesn't look to make a statue out of itself. But when it does produce some sort of assumption or conclusion, something convincing, we have a tendency to go, Oh, we found it. We get it now. We, un- we completely understand it now. Meanwhile, we're constantly looking back at scientific findings. We're constantly looking back at medicine, medical techniques, and we're like, "Oh, I can't believe that they did bloodletting!" Oh my! So they, you're telling me that they sliced a man's veins open to to get the disease out? And we look back at that, and we roll our eyes. We roll our inner eyes at that. But then we look at what we have right now and we're like, you have to believe this. And it's helpful to believe in a lot of this stuff. It's not like I completely dismiss medicine or science, but I also recognize that it's temporary. The stability that we think we've found in science and medicine is going to be temporary. It doesn't mean we shouldn't give it a chance. Obviously people are. But we have to recognize that it too is temporary, and we will never have a complete understanding. We will never have a total perspective. And of course we have that perspective on things that have already happened. Of course we do. We climb up another rung of the ladder... You know, over time we climb, you know, each generation climbs up a rung and we look back at previous generations and say, look at all the things they got wrong. Look at all the nonsense they were arguing over or fighting over. So we do gain a greater perspective with time. But even with that greater perspective on history, we're always missing something in the present. So, the idea that you could be completely right right now is wrong. It's just, it's going to be wrong no matter what you believe in. But again, it's not an excuse to do nothing or to not commit yourself to some kind of ideal. I believe that's important. You should still strive toward a certain ideal. And I believe we have enough information to know what's genuinely harmful and what's not. But you should do it for its own sake, not because of where you fit into the, you know, it's not because of how you fit into some sort of historical view. Don't do what you're doing because people from 200 years from now will look back and remember you. They'll go for walks in the graveyard, and they'll look down at your headstone and say, ha, this guy knew, uh, this guy was doing the right thing back then. You know, nobody's going to think that. And don't do it because you're going to heaven or hell. Because the reality is, striving toward a certain ideal, doing what you believe is right right now, actually makes your world as you are living it more heavenly or hellish. That's the beauty of doing the right thing while you are in the present moment, is that it actually makes your world better right then, immediately. And there's a reason why people experience certain phenomena after they've made good decisions or bad decisions. People will report experiencing synchronicity, epiphanies, those sorts of experiences, seemingly after they made a certain decision. I'm not going to get too into that. But there does seem to be something to that that the decisions we make shape our view of the world, because certainly the things we say to ourselves shape our view of the world. And something I've seen with a lot of the same people who who will pitch this right and wrong side of history narrative, many of them are the same people that I personally know who have re- been repeating this mantra of, the world sucks. Ah, oh, we're living in a garbage world. Sucks that we live in a garbage world, huh? Don't you want to be on the right side of history? And when you repeat that often enough, and some of these people say that every day. I have friends who say that kind of thing every single day, one way or another, probably many times a day. It's almost like this weird, I've referred to it before, it's almost like it replaces hello. Like instead of saying hello, you go, it's almost like a weird cult it's like a weird cult greeting. World sucks, doesn't it? Hey, do you want to go get a drink? Welcome to the garbage world. Welcome to garbage world. You know, people have this view, and they say that. that it's an actual phrase that I've heard so many times from so many different people that I know. Garbage world, huh? 2020 much, huh? 2020 sucks, huh? Hey, don't you think 2020 sucks, huh? Uh, you know, it's, it's that same sort of idea. And it doesn't mean you can't acknowledge when life is hard or you see things that are upsetting, but it seems to be something people say even when life is going relatively well. Because, I mean, yeah, occasionally I'll accidentally stumble upon some, like, animal cruelty video that's making its rounds. But you have to remember, the fact that that's making its rounds is itself a reflection of 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 good people, because good people are sharing something like that to say, hey, this is bad, and we need to do something about this, or people need to be aware of this bad thing. Not so they can feel bad, but so that we can live in a world where people don't do this. So you have to remember that, too. You have to be able to look outside of your tunnel vision, where it's like, this isn't just about seeing something bad happen to an animal in a, in a video on the internet. It's also... The people who are sharing this and calling attention to it are doing something good. Are they completely good? Can a bad person point out animal cruelty? Can a good person be an animal advocate? You know, yeah. Or I mean, I mean, can a can a bad person do that too? Somebody can somebody who hits their wife also be an advocate for animal rights? Yeah. Turns out, yeah. There's a lot of. There's a lot of dissonance in our world, you know, but it's important to also be able to take a look at the bigger picture and be like, oh, because this is making its rounds, there is some sort of goodwill at play, even if it's difficult, even if there's this very troubling thing inside of it. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, but these mantras of, oh, it's a garbage world, the world sucks, I hate people. You repeat that often enough and you truly believe it. And what we're seeing right now from progressives, I believe, is it's that sort of mantra, but it's metastasized into people destroying, you know, property and attacking people, censoring people. They see the world as fundamentally bad right now. And that it needs direct and immediate intervention. Meanwhile, they have convinced themselves that there are all of these malignant things at play all of the time. And of course there are malignant things at play. But they're not the whole of it. But when you see the world as fundamentally bad, you are living in hell. Everything becomes hellish. And you yourself become hellish. You yourself become a demon. Because if you wake up every day and you just remind yourself that you're living in hell, you might as well be a demon. And just like that kid who didn't brush his teeth and it set him down a slippery slope to losing his teeth, being homeless, being ostracized, and then he became hateful. Then he started attacking people. You know, that slippery slope. In that same way, when you repeat a, a, a dark mantra to yourself every day... You end up following a similar path, where if, you're, if you believe you are living in hell on a daily basis, you start to see yourself as a demon. And you probably don't acknowledge it, because very few people do. Very few people say to themselves, hey, I'm actually a demon. I'm behaving like a demon. You more likely will attach yourself to some sort of cause or belief So people have to be very careful about that. And it doesn't mean you need to wake up every day and say, the world is beautiful. Before I leave the house today, I'm going to complete my gratitude list. Before I leave the house today, I'm going to complete my gratitude list. You know, you don't need to do that either, I don't think. I think it's helpful. There's a reason why those ideas, why those behaviors help people by doing things like that. And I think you should do that instead of Having this hell mantra, this garbage world mantra, I think you should do that before you ever do that. And maybe you have to do that to get yourself out of the hole you're in. But I think you can approach things realistically and neutrally without having to pretend to be happier than you are or to ignore the ills of the world. You know, I think you can acknowledge those too. But you should try to have some sort of ideal, some sort of constructive or positive ideal. And when you do that, it just doesn't really make sense to, uh, it no longer makes sense to see the world as, as a hellscape. There are pockets of hell, there are holes, there are abysses. But maybe if you strive toward an ideal, you start to see those abysses, you know, with manhole covers on them. You're not going to trip and fall in the sewer because the holes are there, but you actually have to get down and lift the manhole cover off before you fall in. Or you have to follow somebody else who's going to lift it off for you and fall in behind them, which is why you have to be careful who you associate with and who you trust. But, you know, I do believe that if you can find some sort of ideal to strive toward, and it might find you, and you just have to accept it when it does, I mean, I think that's more... That's closer to my experience. It's more just putting your guard down when some sort of ideal does find you. But if you have that, you know, you don't have to worry as much, I don't think, about tripping and falling. And it's like, oh, I tripped on on a twig, and now I'm falling in an endless abyss. You know, it's like, I don't think you have to worry about that quite as much, although you should always be on guard. You know, you should always be careful. But you know I don't know people have this idea that they're living in the Truman show I think as technology communication as as the the means of production have been lowered you know the stars have gotten a little bit lower literally the celebrities are now closer to us than they ever were before we can interact with them in ways that we never could through social media and they read what we say in some cases I say that like I <laughs> I say that like I'm one of the people who comments on celebrities Social media accounts, uh, but it, I'm part of the I'm part of the human race, guys. Uh, I can say we, uh, but you no, know, you know the means of production too are more available to us than ever. You know, where we have cameras, we have we can make video of ourselves. We can express ourselves to a much larger audience than we ever imagined, and we can actually become famous without having to go through the casting couch, without having to go to acting school without having to sign a record contract, you know, we have the ability to do all that. And there's obviously pluses and negatives, because fame is less exclusive than it ever was before. And as a result, it has less meaning. And that's okay, you know, it's just how things have happened, it's how things have evolved. I'm personally not opposed to the stars getting pulled down a little closer to us because that means that we get up a little bit higher it means the average person is elevated a little bit you know we've climbed up on top of the mountain and the stars have come down a little lower and it's almost like we can talk to them and sometimes they they notice us sometimes the star twinkles Uh, And, you know, we have seized the means of production, or at least it's been made available to us. Whether we actually seized it or not, I don't know, but it's been made available to us. The fact that I can do this very mainstream radio show that I do, that you're listening to right now, is itself a testament to that. The fact that anybody in the world, if they wanted, could hear this. You know, is a testament to the fact that the means of production are more available than they've ever been before. And yeah, there's a plus and a negative to that, of course, and a whole lot in between. There's a good and a bad and a whole lot in between to all of that. But the problem is is that, you know, censorship truly is an epidemic right now. Because as we've as we have these we have a wider spectrum uh, in, in which we can communicate, but there's still there are still power structures around that. There are still people controlling that. And you know, I was talking about censorship and deplatforming yesterday, and of course, after I recorded that episode, two major instances of censorship happened—not to me personally, uh, but with Twitter. And uh, a dictionary, just this kind of revisionism, because I mean, something that's going on right now is just this immediate revisionism. You know, there was something where this candidate for the Supreme Court used the phrase sexual preference, which to my knowledge has never been offensive, even in recent years, it's, it, it's not considered a slur of any kind, because a preference is simply that you prefer one thing or the other. And if I say prefer Pepsi over Coke, It doesn't mean that I sat there and thought, well, I'm going to choose, I'm going to randomly choose to like Pepsi more than Coke. No, it just intrinsically appeals to you, but it's still a preference. So there's something intrinsic about our preferences. It's like, why do I like this music over that music? It's not that I sat there and came up with a list of pros and cons. And the same is true for, you know, sexual preference, where when you say someone has a sexual preference, it doesn't mean that they sit there going, well, today I'm, you know, I think instead of being into men, I'm going to be into women. The option is there, but you intrinsically have a preference for one over the other. And I've never heard, you know, I, I do pay attention to these things. I've never heard the idea of sexual preference being referred to as a slur or inappropriate in any way because a preference doesn't mean that you're it doesn't mean that it's some arbitrary preference. It's often something intrinsic. Like why do you prefer things that taste good to you? Why are you drawn to certain things? Many of them you wouldn't be able to explain. And the same appears to be true for sexual preference, where people who prefer the same sex you know they you know it, it, i don't think that they they say it's not a choice they say that it's something intrinsic but it's still what they prefer so i don't see what's so offensive about that but very interestingly webster's dictionary changed the definition of preference and they now there's one of the one of the definitions refers to sexual preference and within the last day They changed it to be offensive because somebody found a screen cap from the end of September where it didn't say anything about it being offensive. And since this came up in this Supreme Court hearing, they've now changed it to be offensive. So you can see where that's a completely politicized move and the immediacy, the suddenness of it, the sudden revisionism of a definition in the dictionary, because a dictionary used to be a mediator in arguments. Whenever there was an argument about the meaning of something, you know, especially pre-internet, if you got in a discussion with somebody and you were like, well, hey, uh, I think this means this. And somebody says, no, it doesn't. You go, well, let's look at what the dictionary says. And that might not settle the argument because even the dictionary is open to interpretation, but you could go, you could consult the dictionary and it would be a neutral mediator. And then now that people can immediately change dictionary definitions to suit political narratives, you know, it's not like this is something that developed over time. It wasn't like Webster's Dictionary, you know, discussed this, you know, looked into the—it's not like they researched this. They changed this immediately in the span of a day to make a political candidate, to make a Supreme Court candidate look bad. And this has nothing to do with supporting her or not supporting her. That is insidious. And the fact that they would do that, they would make that kind of sudden decision, has implications that go far beyond one de- the definition of one little word. And so that happened last night. And people called attention to it, and the problem with that is, even noticing that m- will make you look bad in certain people's eyes. Oh, what does it matter to you? What does it matter to you if the dictionary, if a, if one of the most popular dictionaries changes the definition of a word to suit a political narrative on a whim? What does it matter to you? How dare you notice? And what that reminds me of is, I remember getting in an argument with two friends, probably in like ninth grade. We were on the bus, and I remember uh, I. I used the word Celtic, and they said, you pronounced it wrong. They double team me. Sometimes friends will do that. They double team me, and they were like, it's pronounced Celtic. And I wasn't referring to the basketball team. I was referring to the Celts. And I said, well, yeah, you know, that's the basketball team, but, I mean, it can be pronounced both ways because I had only ever heard it referred to as Celtic. And they they fought me hard on this. I mean, as I've mentioned before, kids will find anything they can to needle you with. Kids will jab you with anything they can find. The example I always use, which actually never happened, but it's always my go to is just the popsicles. Like if you decide to get a red popsicle and your friends get blue popsicles, they very well might give you shit for an, an hour straight about getting a red popsicle. Oh, so you got the re- <laughs> the red popsicle, huh? even though it has no meaning. It's not like there's any euphemism. It's not like it actually has any meaning. But yeah, kids will make fun of each other for obvious things. Like, oh, you got big ears. You're fat. You got no eyeballs. <laughs> there's no eyeballs in your head. You know, kids will find obvious glaring issues with you like that. But they will also, if when they can't do that or just when they're bored, they will find other things. They will say, oh, you got a red popsicle, huh? <laughs> We're going to call him red popsicle from now on. Hey, red uh, you know, kids will do that, and it has—it doesn't have to have any meaning. And it, that's sort of what happened to me, and and I, it obviously traumatized me because I still remember it, deeply traumatized me. But these were my friends, and they were like, "It's not pronounced Celtic; it's pronounced Celtic." And it wasn't just one. That wasn't it. They—the entire bus ride turned into this argument, and they were really jabbing me with this I- idea that I mispronounced it. And it was frustrating because I knew, I knew that Celtic was a possible pronunciation, pronunciation of it, as they were saying. So it wasn't like I was saying, you guys are wrong. I was saying, hey, it can be pronounced both ways. And anybody listening to this, I'm sure, has heard the pronunciation Celtic. And that night, you know, I got home and we had the Internet then. And uh, I went to the dictionary. I went to probably Webster's Dictionary. And I looked it up, and sure enough, it, it had both pronunciations. And I instant messaged my friend, and I said, hey, look. Cause, and keep in mind, they, it was like an hour, it felt like. Like, they went at me hard about this. And again, I know it wasn't actually about pronunciation. Uh, and I know that it wasn't about... The, the, they were attacking me not because they cared about the pronunciation of some European pagan tribe. It was just a way to jab at me, you know, but I sent them a link and I was like, hey, look, it's also pronounced Celtic. And my friend goes, I can't believe you cared enough to look that up, (laughs) which if you're wrong about something, that's the ultimate comeback. I can't believe you cared enough. And I can easily see people doing that about this current dictionary thing where the dictionary overnight changed the term preference to refer to an offensive slur implying that gay people choose to be gay because that's what that comes down to Uh, but it's like you wouldn't say you prefer you know again coke and pepsi just because i prefer pepsi doesn't mean i chose pepsi i prefer it but i didn't consciously go i'm gonna choose to like pepsi because i feel like it some people may have done that i didn't i prefer pepsi And I do, I actually do prefer Pepsi. I know that puts me in a weird category. I'm a Pepsi person. I'm a a Burger King, Pepsi, and Ford guy. Not a Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and Chevrolet guy. And I do, I have product synesthesia, as I've talked about before, where Pepsi is to Burger King, is to Ford trucks, as Coca-Cola is to McDonald's, is to Chevrolet trucks, Chevy trucks. Don't ask me. I wouldn't be able to tell you why that, that is, but I have synesthesia, and those things are all correlated. But anyway, I didn't consciously choose Pepsi. It wasn't random or arbitrary. I simply prefer the taste. And that's still a preference, though. And the same is true for who you prefer, what your romantic or sexual preference is. It's still a preference, even if it wasn't arbitrary. So the idea that a company can, you know, speaking of arbitrary, the fact that a company can arbitrarily change that to make a Supreme Court candidate look bad is, yeah, very insidious. And the implications of that, we, we will only see how that develops. Um and you know another case is there's something going on today where one of the political can one of the presidential candidate's sons had some sort of there's an article in a major newspaper i don't even know that we can call them newspapers anymore but a major newspaper released an article that makes a presidential candidate's son look very bad and twitter won't allow you to post it if you try to post it and not that i was trying but i saw that people were And if you try to post it, it will say, this is potentially harmful and can't be shared. And Facebook is also not allowing it. And, uh, I mean, that's just explicit censorship. Whether the article is right or wrong doesn't matter. It's in a mainstream news publication, but it makes a certain political candidate's son look poorly and therefore reflects poorly on that political candidate. And the fact that Twitter is using the phrase potentially harmful that is interesting. It's, it fits in with all of that language. You know, the progressive language over the last decade has, you know, it's grown to define violence as something other than actual violence, which itself minimizes real violence. You know, if something is violent, we should say it's violent. If you think that something encourages violence, say that it encourages violence. Don't call it violent. Violence refers to a specific action. You know, don't use hyperbole. And, you know, we've just seen where words have have taken on these alternate meanings. And it feels silly to even say that. It feels silly to even have to say that. I feel dorky even pointing that out because it's so obvious. But we really see where words are... The meaning of words is changing in present time. And if that's not evidence that they are placeholders, I don't know what is. You know, words are placeholders for ideas. And if someone doesn't like the idea, they will change it, especially when they have the ability, when they have unchecked power. The people who are responsible for these tech businesses have unchecked power. And that inevitably leads to censorship. So we're seeing that play out. And personally, you know, this is my personal belief, not to get too self-righteous, but I believe that history always reflects poorly on censorship and any kind of constraint on free speech. Because there's such a desperation to it that someone thinks that is the only effective measure they can, get in, they can put in place to get what they want. Even though it's very measured and strategic, like what's going on right now in terms of censorship and the attacks on free speech, they are very measured and strategic, yet they are also desperate. And so here I am. Now I'm the one saying you're on the wrong side of history. You're going to hell. You're going to hell because you it people. But if I'm going to believe something, if, if I am going to commit myself to an idea of heaven and hell, I do believe that, you know, your conduct toward other people is one of the ways that you would be judged. Uh, but yeah, all of this has played out in the last 24 hours, um, two of the more egregious examples that I've ever seen. And I've seen quite a bit of online censorship in the last five years. But these are two of the more egregious examples. So I just had to point them out since I was talking so much about censorship yesterday. And uh, just like the kid, but just like my friend, when I pointed out to him that, hey, Celtic can be pronounced Celtic, not just Celtic. And in fact, I've primarily heard, like I've seen documentaries. I've listened to podcasts where experts in European history talk about this stuff. And I generally hear the pronunciation Celtic. I really only hear Celtic when it's referring to the sports team, so you can tell that. Yeah, obviously I'm traumatized, and still mad, <laughs> and still mad at those friends for attacking me. And of course, again, I know it wasn't about what I was saying; it was a, a way to jab at me. It's a way to bully me. Um, but it was so frustrating when I pointed out. That I Not that they were wrong, but that I was right, that we were both right. And they said, I can't believe you cared enough. Because I believe that's what people would do right now. I believe that's what they are doing. I've seen a little bit of it, where if you point out that the dictionary changed one of its definitions overnight to, su- to suit a political narrative, people would probably say, I can't believe you cared enough to notice that. The fact that you noticed that actually reflects poorly on you not these weird underhanded measures that are being taken in the tech world to try to shape our reality and control people. No, you're the one who's wrong. You're wrong for noticing. And that's always a sick, that's always a form of mental sickness when you shame someone for noticing something. And yet, and it is gaslighting, a buzzword I don't like, But it is interesting how the very people who make accusations of gaslighting do it. Because everybody does it. Everybody gaslights. It's like the book. There's a children's book about going potty called Everybody Poops. Everybody gaslights. Someone needs to write that children's book. Everybody gaslights. And when you shame somebody for noticing something, or you shame somebody for doing the research or looking something up after you've told them they're wrong and them coming to you showing you that they in fact weren't wrong they were right and you say oh it's your fault for you know it's your fault for caring enough to look for the truth you know that's defi- there's definitely an, a sickness there not, I'm not saying it's like some mental illness but it's definitely a sick behavior but people use it to their advantage Especially when they know they are doing something wrong. Because like I was saying yesterday, I think deep down, everybody knows censorship is wrong. Even if you feel that it is serving some greater purpose, that is something that must just sit in your gut. That just must sit in your gut. And it can't sit well. And so I, I really don't have any... On one hand, I don't have sympathy for someone who is censoring. But at the same time, I recognize that they cannot feel good about that. But uh, anyway, I don't know. We, you know, I feel like everybody feels like they're living in the Truman Show. That's what people are talking about when they say, We're living in a simulation. We're living in a simulation. Assimilation simulation. Simulation. And, you know, there's an episode about that, about how I say we aren't living in a simulation. I do not believe at all that we are living in a simulation. We've just grown into such a weird computer, you know, video game world that we now start to look at life itself operating as life does and say, hey, isn't it kind of like a simulation? And it's like, no, simulations are mimicking life. When we create a simulation on a computer, when we play SimCity, When we simulate something, we are trying to make it as close to life as we can, and of course it doesn't completely take on all of the qualities of life, although we've gotten better at that. Video games are more realistic, both in terms of the AI, in terms of the visuals, our ability to control what's going on. But simulations resemble life, but we shouldn't get that mixed up and start thinking, oh, Because these things that we created to be like life are kind of like life, when life does something weird, it must be a simulation. And it's like, no, that's what life is. Weird phenomena happen constantly in life. Synchronicity happens, and it makes us do a double take. We look out our window and we think, this can't possibly be real. We see what other people are doing. Now that we are observing so much of the world through our computers, we, we see what people are doing and we think, this feels like somebody is doing this just to mess with me. But that doesn't mean it's a simulation. That's simply how life works. And if you were alive at any point in history, you very well might feel that way. But because you are exposed to so much, because you have access to so much, you have a view into so many different things, and people are giving you that view they're live streaming you can see what that person is seeing right now as they see it you can see all of their ideas as they enter the collective you know unconscious you know you you can see the collective the collective collective you can see the collective consciousness play out you know as i've said before social media is a simulation of the collective consciousness The way that people express their thoughts and then those thoughts enter into your brain, it's simulating the collective consciousness. It isn't the collective consciousness, but it's a simulation of it. And you wouldn't turn around and say that the collective consciousness is a form of social media. Because that's what you're saying when you say life is a simulation. To say that life is a simulation is like saying that the collective consciousness is social media when it's the other way around. Social media is mimicking the collective consciousness and it in turn feeds into the collective consciousness because these things aren't closed off from one another. And the same is true for life itself where life is not a simulation but a simulation is mimicking life and in turn that becomes a part of life. These smaller simulations we create in life become a part of our life. They are a part of our life. Their very existence makes them a part of our life. And they influence our life. But life itself is not a simulation. And, uh, you know, I won't go off too much more about that today. Um but yeah, we do have this feeling like we're living in the Truman Show sometimes. And what's funny about the Truman Show, and that was a very important movie for my generation. It's a fun movie. The idea is fun. It was well done. I think I watched it again maybe in the last few years. But what's funny about it is the way it's all set up is for everybody to be nice and for him to have this great life. Like he has he has a job, he has a house, a wife. Everything's perfect. Everyone says hi to him. And things, you know, things lead him down a path where he starts to question that. But what's funny about it is up to that point, everything is going very well. And that's why, you know, it's fiction. (laughs) Because if the Truman Show were real, do you think that they would just give this person a perfect life? They would probably ignore him. You know, he gets all this attention. His neighbors always say hi to him. Everything seems to go well for him. And I know I know it's part of the story that he he loses his dad and he goes through difficulties. So they do they do put him through artificial they give him artificial struggles of course, but overall he is given a good life and he feels important in his community. Everything has worked out relatively well for him. But you have to imagine that if that were to play out in reality, if they were to actually set up a Truman show, They would torture that guy, they would torture him, they would ignore him, they would make him feel like he was going to be lost to obscurity, it would be such a, it would be so tempting to experiment with that guy, I mean look at the way that you handle simulations that are in your control. You play Grand Theft Auto, and I know all my references are outdated. All my cultural references are outdated. Although there probably there's current Grand Theft Autos, I'm sure they're still probably making those. They're probably still milking that. They're probably still milking that cow. Um, but you know, you think about that, where it's Grand Theft Auto, and it's like there's a set of rules you can follow, and you're a criminal. All my references, it's like The Truman Show. It's like Grand Theft Auto. It's like I haven't paid attention to anything in the last twenty five years. Um, but, uh, you know, in Grand Theft Auto, you can follow the rules or you can just hit people with your car and kill random people and kill cops. You know, you can do whatever you want. And a part of you does that just for fun. If you ever played The Sims, I'm getting real current here. That That brand new game, The Sims. If you're playing The Sims, you know, while you can follow the rules and try to set up a happy family with a nice working house, you at least once you've tortured those people you've done whatever you can to make them depressed make them hate life you probably sealed somebody off in a room without a door and to think that we wouldn't do that if we were scripting our own Truman show to think that we wouldn't torture that guy not just take his dad away to give him some kind of adversity but we would probably do things like seal him in a room and so that's what's funny about the Truman Show is just the idea that he's the star of the show and he gets to feel important and loved. When in reality, we'd, we'd probably be like, you know what, let's let's have everybody ignore this guy for a day. Let's let's have everybody that Truman texts. Let's have every text message that Truman sends go unanswered for 36 hours and see what he does. Let's see what Truman does when he logs on to dictionary.com and he sees that a definition has been changed overnight. Let's see what Truman does when he tries to post an article about a presidential candidate and it says this article is potentially harmful. Can't post, you know, let's see what he does. So while I don't believe we're living in a simulation, I don't believe that we ourselves are Truman. If we were, who's to say that it wouldn't be exactly what you're experiencing right now? Who's to say that all of the frustrations you're experiencing, all the lack of acknowledgement, your neighbor who doesn't say hi to you, who's to say that that's not scripted too? I don't like thinking that way, though, because I don't believe in it. I don't believe that that's what life is. I don't believe life is a movie. Uh, you know, because it, 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 it's sort of what happens. I mean, the simulation thing, the earlier version of the simulation thing, because that's a new term. While there have always been simulations of some kind, even before the digital age, you know, it, it's, it's a relatively new term. As we, as we have become more computerized, we start to use more computerized terms to refer to the life around us, to the world around us. And so an earlier version of the whole, like, do you think we're living in a simulation? An earlier version of that was, are we living in a movie? It was like a movie. Like you experience something strange and surreal in your waking life. And you say, I felt like I was in a movie. Is life a movie? And it's like, no, of course not. Movies are trying to capture that thing that you experience. And of course, they dramatize it. Of course, they make it a little more surreal, a little more removed from reality than the things you experience in your waking life. But when you have moments where you feel this is surreal and I feel like I'm in a movie. That's what movies are trying to capture and movies just happen to go overboard with it. It's the same thing with a simulation, where when you experience things in your waking life that make you go, am I living in a glitching matrix simulation? You know, that's what simulations are trying to capture. Simulations are trying to capture that thing that you experience already. But don't forget what comes first. Don't forget that you come first. Don't forget that you are the one shaping your own reality in so many different ways. And if you're the one shaping your own reality, that gives you a lot of options. You can make a lot of decisions. And I'm not going to get into manifestation and all of that, although I believe in that to some degree. I don't believe that everything you see and experience is manifested by you alone, but I do believe you can manifest heaven around you depending on the sorts of thoughts that you allow yourself to have on a regular basis. I do believe that you can orient yourself toward being right right now without worrying about how the history books will think of little old you. And with you know that in mind, all it comes down to is making decisions, controlling what you think Using mind control to your advantage by controlling your own mind. And if you do that, making decisions in your day-to-day life won't be as difficult because your mind will already be pointed in that direction. You'll be going with the grain. And that's heavenly. When you do feel like you're going with the grain in life, and you don't always feel that way. And you shouldn't expect to always feel that way, but when you feel like overall you're moving in that direction, you're moving with the grain, there's something heavenly about that. Not perfect, but there's something heavenly. You might as well be on the right side of history because being right here, right now, doing the right thing right here, right now, that is history. You know, you are living it right now. So why worry about the future? Why worry about the way that the history you are living right now could potentially mutate to make you look bad? But just remember, when someone says to you, be on the right side of history, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? What they're really saying is, you want to go to heaven, don't you? Not hell. But I think in even asking that question, you are leading yourself down the hallway to hell. I think in even thinking in those terms, you are more likely to manifest a certain hell. Because the thing is, is, you don't have to think about heaven to get there. You don't have to have the goal of reaching heaven. All you have to do is make the right decisions as you experience those crossroads. As life presents itself, you can make each decision in the moment. And if you eventually get to heaven, wonderful. But you don't have to have that as a goal. And I don't think there's anything better than ending up in heaven, if not by accident, than just by incident. No, I incidentally ended up in heaven. Awesome. Didn't even know I was. Didn't even know I was heading toward heaven. And so, if you're going to end up on the right side of history, I think the best way to do it is unexpectedly. I unexpectedly ended up on the right side of history. And honestly, I don't think there's any other way to get there. <laughs>